This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, what shall we talk about today, boys and girls? It is sad to note that sometimes there's just so much bad news out there, you feel overwhelmed with it. Makes us wish sometimes we weren't doing a comedy program. (laughs) Oh, speaking of comedy, perhaps you caught the final episode of Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. A funny closure to a good season, and I hope Mr. David will come back and do it yet again. Compared to what passes for comedy out there, I'd, I'd say he's he's still, you know, pretty much at the top of his game. That's my opinion anyway. And you know, even I get tired of my own opinion sometimes. But uh, I know from doing this over the years that people like hearing opinions, even if they don't necessarily completely agree with them. They don't like hearing opinions they completely oppose. But it's a sad fact of life in the real world that we're now able to shield ourselves to a large extent on social media, etc., from opinions we disagree with. And that is having a very bad effect in the long run. So I'm going to serve up some opinions of things that I think are, are, are uh, unfortunate. See if you don't agree. Here's one for Silicon Valley liberals. The three richest people in the U.S., Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, own as much wealth as the bottom half of the U.S. population. That's according to the left-leaning Institute for Policy Studies. The trio is worth a combined $248 billion, equal to the assets of the 160 million least rich. So yeah, we're a little surprised that the, uh, the club of, of, of high-tech firms uh, only has a two out of the top three among the three richest people in America. I thought Buffett came in something like sixth, whereas the top five firms in the country are now solidly in the tech department. I don't know, but I do have to ask Silicon Valley liberals how much they like this idea of, well, monopoly capitalism. Will that describe it? I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google. Are these not near monopolies in every instance? Over the Thanksgiving holiday, Amazon's stock prices spiked, making founder Jeff Bezos' fortune above $100 billion for the first time. The 53-year-old is the first billionaire to hit the 12-figure mark since 1999 when Bill Gates did it. That's according to Bloomberg.com. Taking a look at what Amazon is up to, Danny Westness, writing in the Seattle Times, said, There's rising worry that corporations are taking over America. But after looking into what cities and states are offering Amazon in hopes of winning the company's second headquarters, Witness says, I don't think takeover quite captures what's going on. It's more like surrender. It's not simply the breathtaking tax breaks and giveaways. In some cases, democracy itself is a a bargaining chip. Chicago has offered to let Amazon pocket $1.3 billion in income taxes paid by its employees. The workers must still pay the full taxes, but instead of the state getting the money to use it for schools, roads, and whatever, Amazon will get to keep it all instead. Chula Vista, California, has suggested giving Amazon $100 million in free land, along with a 30-year pass on property taxes worth $300 million. Some cities have even offered to effectively put Amazon inside the government. Boston has proposed a task force of city-paid employees working on the company's behalf. 
Fresno has pledged to siphon 85% of all taxes and fees generated by Amazons into a special fund with spending partly overseen by company executives. Evidently, a city official defended the idea, saying Amazon deserved to have the money spent not, a, not for the fire department in the fringe of town, but to enhance Amazon's own investment in Fresno, said witness. And here you thought your taxes were for the public good, including protecting neighbors on the fringe of town. Suckers. And speaking of being suckers, I'm coming to conclude that by the time I attended medical school, the sugar industry had pulled a fast one on all of us. Researchers at UCSF have found records of animal research commissioned in 1968 by a sugar industry trade group. A British scientist was paid to investigate the effects of sugar on the gut bacteria of rodents. The study's early findings showed that sugar is metabolized differently from starches such as beans and grains. Animals fed sucrose, table sugar, produced high levels of an enzyme linked to hardened arteries and bladder cancer. These findings were never published. In fact, the trade group halted the study because it was, before it was finished, indicating that the health damage caused by sugar was suppressed in order to preserve profits. Said the author's study, Dr. Stanton Glantz, this is continuing to build the case that the sugar industry has a long history of manipulating science. The Sugar Association disputes this claim, arguing that animal research was discontinued due to delays and budgetary concerns. We will take up the story of sugar with the author of The Case Against Sugar, Gary Taubes. That, we hope, on next week's program. We made some mention a few weeks back about a TV program on the Panama Papers, but there's a whole new set of leaked documents called the Paradise Papers that's ruffling some feathers. Writing about it in The Guardian, Thomas Franks said, We've always known that rich people park their money in offshore tax havens. Yet, thanks to a trove of leaked financial documents known as the Paradise Papers, we now know that tax havens aren't some sideshow to Western capitalism. They are a central reality. Everyone seems to be in on it, Russian oligarchs and billionaire CEOs, as you'd expect, but also our favorite actors and singers, colleges and charities. The hidden billions squirreled away from the tax man are like an unseen planet whose mass and power we are only now beginning to grasp. We're currently being told by Republican lawmakers that cutting taxes is the key to making the American economy flourish. But let us acknowledge the ultra-rich clearly prefer not to do what it takes to support a functioning society. They're happy to haul billions out of our economy, but maintaining the machinery that keeps it all running, that's on us. Think about what we might have done with all that lost tax revenue over the years. The schools that could have been built, the police that could have been given raises, the dying Rust Belt cities that could have been revived instead. We endure potholes and live in fear of collapsing highway bridges because our leaders wanted these very special people, one of these very special people to have an even larger second yacht. I don't know about the yacht part, but it does seem that there is a hidden economy that is um, something on par with the visible economy that needs to be looked at. I know, your next question is, who's going to do the looking? Well, <laughs> we don't know either. Investigative journalists are out there turning these stories up, but... Uh, the distribution just uh, it just doesn't seem to be there. wonder why that is. Could it be that a lot of very powerful and rich people own a disproportionate share of our nation's media? Hmm, I don't know. Let's go back to talk about some of the woes of tech, which is becoming a recurring theme on this program. According to New Scientist, November 25th issue, uh, well, I'll just read from it. 
Have you ever typed something into a search box on a website and then thought better of it? New research shows that 482 sites may be passing on that data anyway. We have long known that information we provide online can be tracked. Scripts running on websites deposit cookies or track you to other sites. But these seem tame compared to what Stephen Englehart of Princeton University and his colleagues found after combing through hundreds of websites to examine the scripts they run, the widespread use of a script called Session Replay, which logs everything you do on a website, including what you type before you hit enter. It then sends its information to a third party that has placed the script there. This can bypass traditional privacy measures like HTTPS, as while your connection to the site is secure, the third parties have been pre-authorized by the site to watch you there, and how they send the information they glean isn't guaranteed to be private. Yow! I don't know what to say about that except yow, so let's move on. How about this? Android phones are secretly collecting users' locations and sending the data to Google, even when location services are disabled. This is according to Keith Collins in QZ.com. Since January, the latest Android phones and tablets have collected the addresses of nearby cell towers in order to improve the speed and performance of message delivery. That's in quotes. That's according to Google. It's not clear how a cell tower address could speed message delivery, however, and Google said it would end the collection process after being contacted by QZ.com. You know, I got to say, I was a little surprised to have my Android phone uh, show me where I've been lately. Yeah, I guess as long as I've had this phone, it's been keep keeping track of where I've been and how long I've been there. And I, I, I you know, I was there. I, I, I don't need this information particularly, but others may be interested in it. But I'm sure the purveyors of my phone service would never think of selling that information to anyone else, right? Now, the Supreme Court is weighing a case right now that has to do with uh, personal information, how much the government, how much the government is able to assess about citizens thanks to technology. It seems right now the government is not the problem. The government can only dream of what the tech companies are doing. Of course, they can always request the data from the tech companies, and unfortunately, it seems the tech, com the tech companies will often comply with those requests. Nevertheless, in a case that could have broad implications for privacy rights in the digital age, well, this concerns a man convicted of armed robberies in Ohio and Michigan. Police used cell location data requested from the man's wireless carrier, which tracked which cell phone towers relayed his calls and linked him to the crimes. It turns out, everywhere this guy went, he made phone calls that were right in the vicinity of where crimes were being committed. And from what I understand, he has a lot of Confederates that have confessed to all of these crimes. There seems to be no doubt about his guilt in the matter. The question is how much the government can also utilize <laughs> this technologic data to shape was to say, well, yeah, you were right in the neighborhood. The man's lawyers are arguing that because the location request did not accompany a warrant, they constituted unconstitutional searches. Chief Justice John Roberts appeared sympathetic to that position, as did several liberal justices. Most Americans, I think, still want to avoid Big Brother, said Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Well, y yeah. This case is based on years-old data. I don't know how many years ago that, you know, your phone company <laughs> sent you a message saying, hey, want to know where you've been lately? Yeah, these issues over tech and privacy are scaring the bejesus out of us. And, you know, I just, I'm looking around to find something good to say about technology. And, and, well, here's an item. To quote from the week, Tesla has built the biggest battery in the world in just two months, all because of a Twitter bet. After massive lightning storms knocked out South Australia's power grid last year, 
Australian politicians blamed the state's reliance on renewable energy for the mass blackouts, saying wind and solar couldn't cover baseline energy needs in an emergency. Tesla responded that it could build 100 megawatts worth of giant lithium batteries in just 100 days to solve the state's problems. The battery farm will store huge amounts of energy from renewable sources and transmit it as needed. Asked on Twitter if the offer was real, Tesla's CEO Elon Musk tweeted, Tesla will get the system installed and working 100 days from contract signature, or it is free. The company finished 40 days ahead of schedule. Now, this really is something that should be talked about. Electrical power is something that needs to be generated all of the time, at least it always has been. There's a limited capacity to store electricity for later use. I know that in the case of like the Oroville Dam, they would pump water back up the top of the dam during times of low energy demand so that they could then generate it again as the water flowed back downhill. The fact that in South Australia or elsewhere, Tesla or others can build giant storage capacity for electricity is pretty earth-shaking, I think. I mean, this just might make the whole issue of renewables doable. Could it not? I mean, that's the big knock on renewables, you know. The wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. That these, This is true, but if you can store the electricity you generate when it's windy and sunny, well, isn't this a game-changer? I mean, why isn't this page one headline news? I don't know. Well, I guess that's our mission here at Radio Parallax, among others, to try and take something off of page 16 and say, well, this really should be uh, on page one where you noticed it. This does reflect, I think, our, our age, referring to page one of a newspaper. Who reads those anymore? And speaking of wasting energy, how's that for a segue? How about this item I've been sitting on for a while? Article by Marsha Dunn, Dateline Cape Canaveral, Florida. The world's nights are getting alarmingly brighter. Bad news for all sorts of creatures, humans included. The German-led team reported Wednesday, and this was sometime in, in November, that light pollution is threatening darkness almost everywhere. Satellite observations during five Octobers show Earth's artificially lit outdoor area grew by 2% a year. So did nighttime brightness. Light pollution is actually worse than that, according to the researchers. Their measurements coincide with the outdoor switch to energy-efficient and cost-saving light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. Because the imaging sensor on the polar-orbiting satellites can't detect the LED-generated color blue, some light is missed. The observations, for example, indicate stable levels of night light in the United States, Netherlands, Spain, and Italy. But light pollution is almost certainly on the rise in those countries given this elusive blue light. The biological impact from surging artificial light is significant. People's sleep can be marred, which in turn can affect their health. The migration and reproduction of birds, fish, amphibians, insects, and bats can be disrupted. Plants can have abnormally extended growing periods. And forget about seeing stars of the Milky Way if the trend continues. The article says Franz Holker of the Leibniz Institute for Freshwater Ecology and Inland Fisheries in Berlin, who's a co-author of this study, said things are at a critical point. Many people are using light at night without really thinking about the cost. Not 
just the economic cost, but also the cost that you have to pay from an ecological environmental perspective. They are recommending you avoid using glaring lamps whenever possible, choosing amber over so-called white LEDs, and using more efficient ways to illuminate places like parking lots or city streets. For example, for example, dim, closely spaced lights tend to provide better visibility than bright lights that are more spread out. <sighs> I've been puzzling over this my entire life. I've observed that in most instances, when you have a light on outside, it blinds you so that you can't see <laughs> around it. Not in every instance, of course, but, but all too often. I suppose it's true if you're in an area where there's crime or you're, or you're at risk of crime, you, you would like it well lit. But in a lot of applications, like in, in driving, or well, here's the classic example I think I've talked in this program about, I don't know, several times before. But it always, it always struck me as so illuminating, to choose a word. I used to have a boat. Many years ago, I took that boat from Sacramento down to San Francisco, did that trip several times. It was a lot of fun. But as you may or may not be aware, dear listener, you generally don't have lights on a boat. You don't have headlights on a boat. You don't have street lights on a river. But your eyes have this remarkable ability to expand to see in lowered light. Therefore, it turns out if you try it, I don't necessarily recommend that you do, but maybe, maybe I do recommend that you do. <laughs> if you try getting on a boat and maneuvering down a river on a night, even without a moon, you'll find you can do it easily. Are you at increased risk of hitting something? Not necessarily. When you start adding light into the equation, it sometimes blinds you to where you can't see as well, believe it or not. And once you've lost your night vision, you're not getting it back for 10 or 15 minutes. Anyway, let's talk about something else. How about this one? The Washington Post notes that 16 of the nation's top retired military commanders are urging Congress to pass gun control legislation, arguing that there are many steps that can be taken to curb gun deaths that do not violate the Second Amendment. In a letter they plan to send to congressional leaders, the retired commanders, including Army General Wesley Clark and Michael Hayden, Navy Admiral Eric Olson, Air Force Lieutenant General Norman Seep, and Marine Brigadier General Stephen Cheney, argue that Congress is no longer speaking or voting for the majority of Americans, including gun owners, when it comes to the issue of firearms. They wrote, There is no acceptable excuse for our elected leaders to avoid addressing this as a national crisis. The group is part of the Veterans Coalition for Gun Control Group, founded by former Representative Gabrielle Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly. The retired military men and women said that as military leaders, they defended the Constitution and have considerable firearms training. As Americans, they said, they find the level of gun violence across the country unacceptable, calling the shootings that killed 58 people in Las Vegas, quote, but the latest instance of shocking horror, unquote, that the nation has experienced in recent years. The retired commanders argue that closing background check loopholes, barring extremely lethal guns and accessories, and working toward preventing gun suicides can be addressed within every reasonable interpretation of the Second Amendment. Oh, and speaking of shooting people with guns, I don't think we sounded off about the verdict in San Francisco last week where a crazy guy who'd been deported to Mexico five times and either found or in some way obtained a gun that he fired off down near Fisherman's Wharf. The bullet struck a young woman in the abdominal aorta, which proved fatal. And this became a hot-button national issue 
about sanctuary cities, etc., etc., etc. Well, the case went before a jury in San Francisco, which failed to convict the guy of involuntary manslaughter. It did convict him of illegal possession of a weapon. He was sentenced to three years. He's already served two. It seems to Radio Parallax that indiscriminately firing a weapon in a crowded area that results in a fatality should earn you perhaps a little bit more than a conviction for possession of an illegal weapon. I mean, every New Year's Eve we're advised that if we fire our guns off in the backyard, you're guilty of a, of a crime. You know, I guess if you do it in San Francisco and you kill somebody with it, <laughs> they'll only convict you of possessing an illegal weapon. And I guess if you own the weapon, maybe you won't be charged at all. I don't know. And I guess this invites one of our usual rants about the jury system. There probably are people, and there no doubt are many, many people. I know many people who are great believers in the fact that the Constitution of this country guarantees a right to a jury of your peers, blah, blah, blah. Which, which, sounds, which sounds pretty good. In fact, if I ever commit a heinous crime, you can bet your ass I'm going to look forward to having a jury serve judgment upon me. Hell, I may look up the lawyer that did the San Francisco case. But it's also a fact that there are other ways to administer justice. In fact, only nations that used to be colonies of Great Britain or Great Britain have this idea that you should be tried by 12 of your fellow citizens who, in the case of, say, contemporary America, are asked to take time off of their jobs where they may earn, well, I don't know, $100,000 a year perhaps, to earn instead $5 a day as jurors. Oh, well, my, my understanding is they will also cover your parking. Now, we admit $5 a day sounds like a very fair wage for 1912. But most people, although they have the vague idea that, you know, they, they want to do their civic duty, realize this is a tremendous financial hardship. And it is, is it not? Does not even the minimum wage worker preparing your hamburger earn $5 an hour? Well, I don't even know what the minimum wage is currently. I'm sure it's more like 7 or 8 but I, I'm, it's a fair bet it's you know more than $5 a day. So therefore, we've set up a system that will create a financial hardship for people on minimum wage. In addition to those people who may have house payments, kids', kids educations to pay for, etc., so what we have is not a jury of your peers, but it is a jury of your peers who didn't figure out a way to get out of jury duty. And if you've ever spoken to people who served on juries, you, you may be surprised to learn that, well, that they aren't necessarily masters of logic. In other nations, they rely upon trained jurists to serve in the judicial system, render legal judgments, what they have been trained to do. You know, it seems like a sensible, it seems like a relatively sensible idea, does it not? You know, I, I realize that, you know, you may get, you know, a, a reasonable judgment out of Otis taking time from his drinking beer in the local tavern to serve on your jury. But then again, maybe not. In fact, I can't resist quoting a bit about juries from the book Guilty by Judge Harold J. Rothwax. It was subtitled The Collapse of Criminal Justice. Chapter 10, he starts out with this. At a recent robbery trial, I noticed a female juror sitting with her eyes closed during the testimony of a crucial witness. I asked a court officer to tell her to sit with her eyes open. During the recess, I called her in. Were you sleeping, I asked. 
She shrugged. It's necessary for you to hear this evidence, I warned her. She explained, I don't really have to listen to every word. I can tell whether someone is telling the truth by looking at the way he moves his eyebrows. Noted Judge Rothwax. Fortunately, I learned this before the jury began to deliberate and the juror was discharged. Yet, it still troubles me. Every time I see the jury, I fear that there's at least one person in the group who will simply not follow the rules of law. In New York, if a juror is dismissed after deliberations have started, she cannot be replaced by an alternate without the consent of the defendant, and a mistrial will almost certainly occur. I got lucky when I caught this woman in time. The judge then described it in a case where he wasn't quite so lucky. He outlines how the person's guilt in this particular instance was beyond doubt. He noted that the jury voted 11 to 1 for conviction, and so they remained 11 to 1. The whole dot was convinced the defendant was not guilty. As she explained it, quote, someone that good-looking could not commit such a crime, unquote. Rothwax noted that the three-week trial was for naught and they had to retry it. The defendant was convicted the second time around within an hour. He explains in that chapter on juries how it is that jurors are free to do, <laughs> well, downright crazy things. To quote from the chapter, England has a jury system. Consider how a London jury resolved <laughs> some of its issues in a recent murder case. After being unable to reach a decision on the first day of deliberation, the jury was sent to a hotel. While there, four jurors convened and used a Ouija board to make contact with the murder victim. Since they didn't have a Ouija board in the room, they fashioned one by printing letters of the alphabet on scraps of paper and using a glass instead of a pointer. The jurors each put a finger on the glass, which then purportedly moved toward a succession of letters, revealing it was claimed a message from the deceased. Vote guilty tomorrow. At breakfast the following morning, the matter was discussed with other members of the jury. The result was a unanimous verdict to convict. The conviction was later reversed on appeal, and the defendant was retried and convicted again, this time in the conventional manner. Rothwax ended by saying, Judging from what I see every day in the courtroom, jurors might just as well use more Ouija boards to reach their decisions. Apparently, in response to the lobbying efforts of shills, in this case, millennials being hired by tech companies, well, tech companies and real estate developers to put forth the idea that we need to build, build, build in the Bay Area to relieve the housing crisis. Oh, and by the way, they passed legislation that would restrict the ability of jurisdictions to stop projects on environmental grounds. Because these people say, we need more housing, damn it. I find the whole idea too depressing to say much about today. Except that the traffic in the Bay Area is already nightmarish. And I don't know what it's going to be like if they build high-density housing everywhere. Well, I actually, I do know what it's going to be like. And the people that say, well, don't worry about it. We're going to build more mass transit. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. If you drive around the Bay Area, you're going to find that sometimes the traffic is worse on weekends because people who may be taking BART are now in their cars. Well, that's just speculation on my part, but I, I do know that I've seen just hellacious traffic on weekends. And it ain't going to get any better. Headline news that they're going to, they're going to reduce the congested commute on I-680 going north out of San Jose. The Alameda County Transportation Commission a couple weeks back approved $107 million 
approved a $107 million contract to begin working on adding a carpool express lane from Durham Road to Highway 84. It should be noted that today, speeds in this area can drop well under 35 miles an hour as early as 2.30 p.m. and continue until 8.20 p.m. And it's noted when Lake Tahoe-bound drivers join the commuters, forget about it. Well, all right. This will ease the congestion on that stretch of road a bit for a while. And then what? The solution, dear listeners, is to spread out the tech industry into areas like Sacramento and Fresno and places that are not facing housing crises. I know this may create a crisis for millennials that want to live in Sunnyvale and Mountain View. After all, I'm sure if they live in Fresno, the lattes aren't nearly as good. And in many instances, the Wi-Fi connections are spotty. But, you know, the Bay Area is, is pretty full, and it, it, it just it, it shouldn't get a great deal fuller if we want to maintain some sort of quality of life. That's my opinion, anyway. And it's also my opinion that we better damn well take a break and do it soon. So let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.